These are great chairs. Yes. Oh my. Nerd. Oh, you just got called out. That's pretty absurd. It is going to be a thing. Come on. Bad Philosophy, episode 29, recorded on April 12, 2009. A BF Orange. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. One, two, bad philosophy, upsetting the balance of reality one rabbit trail at a time for about eight months eight now. Months. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, since 2008, we'll put it that way. Oh, there you go. Since 2008. Now we're hardcore. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sounds oh, like yeah. we have a year. <laughs> <laughs> we've, uh, we've got a great panel on the show today and, uh, and a great topic, I hope. Um, Jed, for his, uh, what is it, second or third time on the show, I think? Um, yeah, probably around there. Okay. Maybe second or th- probably third full episode, I would say. All right. So. Um, good to have you here as always. Uh, Jed's going to be on his laptop throughout the show providing uh, technical support in, in the form of uh, anecdotes from Wikipedia and uh, possibly Twitter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, we also have uh, Greg Briley, is that right, on the yeah. show as well for his uh, first time, I believe. Yep. But today we've got uh, a topic that we've We've never touched on before, really. Um, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange uh, is a classic film. And by classic, I don't mean like a Disney classic, 101 Dalmatian sort of thing that you show your kids when they're eight. Uh, Clockwork Orange is a very mature, adult, serious yeah. film uh, full of violence and sex and nudity and cursing and really rather disturbing stuff. Um, I was I was told a lot about the film by my by my uncle, um, who was also responsible for the lovely uh, lavalier mics that we are using right now. Um, he's a big movie buff, works in the movie industry. Uh, shout out to Jack, and uh, he recommended the movie to me, sort of as a um, this will blow your mind kind of a film. And uh, I'd heard it about it before. Uh, it was actually part of the ethics movie series that the philosophy department oh, really? put on here in previous years at Texas Tech. Um, they since have not been able to put on the ethics movie series for university copyright regulation fears or something of that nature. Gotta so, love the OP. Um, you know, closing off one more avenue of uh, for the public to be able to get exposed to these these ethically challenging films. Way to go, tech! Yeah, you know, restricting access to uh, information. Uh, but. So I'd heard about the film before, and I'd heard about the, the controversial nature of it. It was made in the 1970s. It was one of the, uh, the first films that Malcolm McDowell starred in. Uh, very young at the time. I, yeah. I was constantly thinking of, uh, of Generations, Star Trek Generations, mm-hmm. watching it. Yeah. And uh, like imagining him later, like, wow, he did this when he was 20-something? <laughs> and I actually I found the film prima facie to be not quite as like personally and emotionally disturbing as I expected it to be. Um, I knew kind of some of the themes that were going on it. I'd had someone give me a plot summary before. It didn't quite hit me as hard as the hype, uh, as I would have expected from the hype. The film is about a kind of a, a, 
dystopian future of a sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this gang member and and his gang who uh, they be, they go around beating up random people and performing acts, acts of, of ultra violence. Ultra violence is what they call it. Um, there's a lot of slang in the movie. It's yeah. it's a it's a good uh, kind of an undertone that puts you in in the environment, well, especially in the. I mean, we'll get to the novel later probably. But, yeah. Uh, the novel really is where a lot of the you spend half of the novel trying to figure out what they're talking about when yeah, they use all these weird... I had that moment a couple times watching the movie. I was like, is there a way I can turn subtitles on? Because I'm pretty sure I missed like half of what that sentence was right there. Because yeah. <laughs> um, they, you know, as expected, culture has evolved and they've evolved new slang terms. Uh, and that's something that, that we often, that movies about the future often neglect is, you know, the vernacular changes. Uh, English is a living language. We're not going to use the same idioms and the same slang terms and the same uh, euphemisms that we do now, uh, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years in the future. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting, it, it really does put you in the story. But uh, so this, this guy and his gang go around beating up random people, and eventually he gets betrayed by his gang for various reasons and arrested. And he's put into prison. He serves about uh, two years. And then he kind of maneuvers his way into this experimental program, which is they're, they're trying to give prisoners a way of um, commuting their sentence, getting out quicker by undergoing this treatment. And the treatment essentially amounts to giving the, giving the, uh, the victim, or the, the patient, I guess in this case, a drug and then showing them uh, very violent material or, or material that they want the, the victim to um, dissociate from liking. So what happens is the drug triggers a sickness in them at a certain point, and as they're watching the film, they have this sickness, and so they associate the two things in their memory. What eventually happens is you know, it tricks the brain, does some you know, combobulation of the, of the neurons, and then whenever they have um, violent thoughts, whenever they want to engage in a sexual act, they then get sick. So it's a way of controlling morality through force, essentially. Yeah. Um, I, you know, first impressions of the film. It, it, was, it was very controversial at the time. It's still controversial now. What did you all think when you first watched it? Well, let's start with Greg. Uh, well, I was pretty young when I watched it, so I was just mostly creeped out by the whole thing. Okay. How young were you, just out of curiosity? Oh, it was... Somewhere around like twelve, thirteen ish. Really? Yeah. Was it? Did you watch it on your own, or did your parents? A uh, friend of mine you? rented it one night. We watched it at their house, and Whew. it was <laughs> it was something. Yeah. <laughs> at, at this point, had you had you had the talk? No. You hadn't. No, I don't believe I had. It's that, wow. <laughs> it, I mean it it puts it puts all these themes right there is not shy at all with just just showing the brutality and the the raw uh, sexual acts and, and nudity like everywhere it's just it's just there it just permeates the film so i'm i'm actually surprised that <laughs> yeah i imagine for a 12 year old it would be far more disturbing it was a little awkward yeah yeah but did did you think about the moral implications at the time or were you mainly just like shocked by all of this this stuff so it was mainly just shocked then. I've thought about it since then, though. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've, you know, I've thought about how it's kind of a, oh, what's the word? It's kind of taken away their own free will, in a sense. Yeah. Because, you know, they force them with the sickness to not do these things, even if they want to. 
And it's, you know, their choice to do it and, and that's, you know, and receive the consequences for it. Exactly. And that's, that's actually one thing. There's a, there's a priest character in the movie who, who brings that up um, right after the demonstration of, of the, the treatment, the results of the treatment. He comes up and he says, you know, look, you've, you've taken away this man's choice. You know, good and evil is, is a choice. It's not something you force upon someone. And uh, it's, you know, it's a blatant statement of, of, I think, what Kubrick is trying to get across. But, and, and it's only really made once and everyone just kind of, you know, hush-hushes him down. And uh, you sort of see the results of, of what happens to the character afterward. Um, he, he eventually confronts all of the people who, whom he hurt um, in, the, in the first part of the movie. And they sort of punish him back. And he has no recourse. He has no way to defend himself because whenever he has these violent thoughts, which, you know, self-defense is kind of violent. It can get violent. He gets sick. And so it, it literally, it's like declawing a cat. He has no way of defending himself whatsoever. And he eventually tries to commit suicide <laughs> um, and fails, <laughs> barely. And uh, I won't ruin the, the exact end of the film, but that's, that's sort of... Yeah, um, things that happens. So, Jed, when you first saw it, what, what were your what were your thoughts? How old well, were you? <laughs> um, I saw it right after I read the book in freshman English mm-hmm. uh, class. So, just kind of wanted to close the loop, as it were. On the book is not by Kubrick, right? No, it's by a fellow named Anthony Burgess, I believe. Yes, and that's it was correct. Written about ten years before the movie. Okay. The movie was late seventies, and I think the book was. 60s like maybe even early 60s i could check but whatever i recall being really creeped out at the beginning just because of i mean even in the opening scene there's a you know they're just zooming out or in on the characters and there's nude women all around yeah. them and it's you know Kubrick makes a, or whoever did the cinematography they make a, a liberal use of wide angle mm fisheye lenses, yeah. which creates this, this really strange, um, you know, distorted picture oftentimes. Uh, very little of the movie is, is shot in, in, like, traditional cinematography. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it does, it does it create a weird environment from the get-go. Yeah, and I, I think that that really helps to, you know, because it, it is a two-hour-long movie compared to a, you know, 300-page novel Mm -hmm. and so it you really have to you can't spend the time building up those characters and building up how weird of a society it is so you have to almost employ that that sort of a a different cinematography angle on it but uh i was a little disappointed with the film because of that ending that you were talking about um is it different in the book the book in some places has a final chapter that wasn't in the movie and that I forget if it was in England or if it was in America that they originally omitted this final chapter. Hmm. And the final chapter touches on what you were talking about earlier with the priest that brought up uh, morality is a choice. Yeah. It's not necessarily a uh, something that you can force somebody into. And it really discusses that and try to do a brief synopsis of it without sure, learning it sure. for people. Uh, basically, it, happened, it details... What happens to Alex? Is that yeah? I think Alex, Alex is his character. Um, yeah. Years after the treatment, and years after you know the ways of his youth have kind of gone by, and what happens to him, and when he does finally choose to give up his ultraviolet ways and things like that, 
and it and it is more of a choice if that if that makes sense. So he, he does eventually choose to stop uh, having these thoughts or to, to stop attempting these mm-hmm. actions, he, despite the the treatment that he underwent. Yeah, I think yeah. he meets one of his old gang members, um, or Drugs, I think is what they're yeah. called. Um, <laughs> but uh, he meets one of them, and they're married, and you know, having the you know they all live happily ever type of life, and mm. he really realizes that he wants that. He you know, legitimately does respect women and wants to wants to have a happy life and wants to have a good job. And I think he ends up working for the government, somewhat ironically, <laughs> and um, things like that. So it, it it really does address that that issue that I think is the central central theme of the novel and the book is that you know you can't literally hold somebody's eyes open forcing them to watch violence and sex and make them sick and try to condition them to be that way because it really should be, a, or in my opinion, it should be a free choice. It yeah. should be about free will. Well, in a lot of people's opinion, too. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it touches on just that question of what do we do with criminals? Because we, you know, uh, one the motivation, I think, for them creating this process in the first place was to save money. They said the prison system is, is too expensive. You know, we keep these guys alive. We give them all these, you know, food and clothing and resources. Uh, we can't kill them. You know, that would be immoral. But, you know, what if we had this way of, of fixing them and putting them back into society? Uh, you know, what, what, are the, what is the point of, of prison? It's, it's, you know, to, to punish a person, to put them away, to separate them from society, and hopefully to, to cause them to sort of internally change their own paradigms and, you know, realize the error of their ways and come out willingly good. Uh, does prison do that? Eh, one might argue that not, not in the vast majority of cases. <laughs> yeah. um, people do a lot of stuff in productive things in prison. Uh, they do a lot of unproductive things, too. But uh, someone told me the other day you can, you can apparently get a degree in prison. You, mm-hmm. can, you can literally take correspondence courses and get a bachelor's degree in something. Um, that's, that's a great idea, I think, because for those people who, who do change in prison but still have a bunch of years left on their sentence, it's a way for them to, to really improve their life when they come yeah. out. But I think uh, on a whole, though, what do you all think of the effectiveness of, of putting people in jails as a method of, of punishment or, or reform? Let's go back to Greg first. Well, you know, it just kind of depends on the person, kind of like how you're saying, where some people will change in prison just because of that separation from society, from everything around them, and just the sheer shock factor of being going to prison. Yeah. While other people will continue to pursue the life that they were living before they went to prison, after they get out, and possibly even during. Just like a lot of these gangs and stuff that are going around the world, you know, United States and various other places. Some of these stuff happened from people that are in prison sending messages to the people out of the pr- outside the prison. Wow. So they're continuing to do what they did that got them in there while they're still in there. Perhaps because there is a little bit too much freedom of communication. So the same the same means that allow people to improve themselves can actually allow them to become worse in prison. Uh, it's a horrible irony. I would say that most of our prison system is not effective, uh, just because it really is just about the separation 
from society, even though ideally we would like it to be separation and, I guess, rehabilitation, right. for <laughs> lack of a better phrase there. Um, but it, it is about separating these folks and then trying to get them to a point where they could come back into the society. And I don't think that we have that education piece of moving it from you've done this and we would like you to realize that this is why it's against the rules of society. Mm -hmm. And there is no, you know, it's just like, hey, we're going to lock you away for X amount of time. You know, it is very formulaic. If you look at, you know, how, what's the maximum sentence a, a judge can give for a certain crime and i don't know that it should be that way you know it it may take take you four years to do your undergrad it took me five you know like just even that is showing that it takes people different times to do to learn things and to get to get an education so i don't know that time is necessarily the best uh indicator yeah. yeah Well, and, and uh, I mean, time isn't the only factor, of course, in prison. Uh, you've got you know, maximum security versus minimal, yeah. and I, often that is proportional to the amount of time that you're in prison. But sometimes it's, you know, we put the most hardened criminals on death row um, for, you know, murders, um, you know, multiple murders, whatever. Uh, but, it, you know, I agree with you. I, I don't think that time is such a great constant in that case because, yeah, people are different. And for for some folks, don't matter how long you put them in prison, they're never going to change. You know, one yeah. person you may you may put them in there for a month, and that's all they need. Mm-hmm. You know, they are scared witless, and they they come out reformed, and they they willingly change. Uh, you know, one thing that, that got me though is Alex's character initially in prison. He just wants out, mm-hmm. and he he kind of he kind of plays the system. He you know he acts like. Uh, you know this good good church boy. He helps the the, the chaplain. Uh, he he kind of he acts like he's changed, mm-hmm. and that's a real problem. You know how 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 do you really determine if someone is genuinely good or just a good actor? Because you know for a prison yeah. system that you would have to hire some some experts to be able to determine that. It, it may be very difficult for them to to go about saying, oh well, you know. This person is uh, eligible to get out on good behavior. Let's evaluate them. And oh yes, they really have changed inside. You know, or maybe they're just getting a theater degree and they've <laughs> do, <laughs> realized. Do you feel like I feel like that's sort of a necessary risk, though? You know, I. Well, in which side do we err on? You know, do we err on the side of, of giving them the benefit of the doubt, or and going, well, well you really have to convince us? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question because. You ask an average citizen, and they're going to say, "Well, we're going to err on the side of caution." Sure, you know, yeah. we don't want those those creepers out there in society. But then you look at our, I believe, our constitution, and it's you know more of a an innocent until proven guilty. And granted, these right. folks have been proven guilty, but you know <laughs> they should be one. You know, the the text of the conf- constitution is very focused on saying, you know, let's give these people the benefit of the doubt mm. in believing that most people are good by nature. And so oh, it's... And that's, see, that, that brings up even another question. Like, what, what Kubrick is showing, I think, is some people are evil by nature. And that, you know, as much as you try to force them to change, their nature will always remain the same yeah. or will remain the same for a long period of time. But, I mean, this debate has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, 
I took an Asian philosophy class actually a, a couple semesters ago, and one of the things we looked at was the the battle between um, Mencius uh, or Mencius uh, and Laozi, uh, the two kind of progenitors of, of Taoism, and uh, Mencius was very much on the side of you know man is born evil. Um, you have to you have to correct him. Uh, it is the you know the job of of government is to institute policies that will correct the people and keep them in line. Uh, whereas Lao Tzu was more like no people are well. I don't I'm not sure if it was Lao Tzu or, or somebody else, but whoever opposed him in the, in the beginnings of Taoism was like no people are born are born good. You know that you you leave them to their own tendencies and they're going to form good societies and perform good acts. It's really hard to say. Um, I. I would tend to err on the side of people are generally good by nature, but that's purely by percentage. You know, I think I think that it is possible for people to be born naturally evil. I mean, what do y'all what do y'all think of that? It, you know, which which way does it go? Is it equal? Is it one way or the other? Greg, it's kind of hard to say because you see a lot of people that are doing you know good things in the world, and you wonder if they've always done that. Hmm. And then there's also the people that are doing the bad things. And you can look back and see various things that could have caused them to do these bad things. Yeah, I mean, is it, is it a matter purely of, of environment, of how you were raised? Or is it, is it something deeper? Is it within you? Is it this, you know, your, your wired good or wired bad? I think that in the, in the novel, at least, it's very... It's from a point of Alex really narrating it. And, yeah. And he really focuses on... You know he's okay. He he's very honest and very open that these are bad things that he's doing. He's not disillusioned that you right. know he's at that point once he's narrating yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and you don't really know where he is at in in life when he's narrating it, yeah. which is interesting. But um, he uh, does really focus on the poor me. My life sucks. This is you know my parents are don't really care. They didn't you know don't really give a crap about me. Things like that, and I think that that was maybe his point mm. in the novel is that it is a little bit of a factor of how how you were brought up. I'm not going to say that I I don't know that I would honestly believe that it's all one or all the other. I'd say that's probably a factor of both. So it's a, it's a combination of yeah. nature and nurture. Yeah, you would say. Okay, Greg, what do you think? I I kind of agree with Jed on that. How it's you know. Environment can definitely have a big impact on what goes on in one's life, but there are just like basic things that cause you to do some stuff, basic urges that you just need to fulfill. Mm. And and it's kind of how we go about doing that that determines whether we're outwardly perceived as good or evil. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, ethics is a uh, it's it's a very broad topic in philosophy. A lot of words, a lot of uh, ink has been spilled over this topic. I, I have not yet taken intro to ethics. I'll actually be taking that next semester, which is very odd. Usually, yeah. I'm, I'm doing my philosophy degree completely backwards. <laughs> I took all the advanced classes first, and now I'm finally getting around to the, the basic ones. <laughs> but it's come up a lot, and it does come up in almost every class. This this question of, you know, what? How should we act? Can you prescribe? You know, a should. Is there a, a categorical imperative like like Kant created? Is is it sort of a a pragmatic morality? You know what uh, what's morally good is what uh, what works. You know what benefits me. You know utilitarian morality, whatever. 
Um, is it rational egoism? You know, whatever preserves my life and mine alone is good. Is it, you know, social morality? Whatever preserves the good of society is good. I mean, that's, there are so many uh, theories floating around, and it's, it's really, we haven't really come to a conclusion on this. Um, there's, there's not the sort of um, well-fleshed-out philosophy in the same way that we have about, uh, say, metaphysics or uh, epistemology. Uh, epistemology is still kind of up in the air, but it's not, it's not quite as up in the air as, as ethics. Uh, Jed, have you found any uh, interesting stuff on online so far? Um, one thing that I had looked at, and it's a little bit down a trail uh, that okay. goes away from this, but um, hey, it's, hey, it's go BF. Right ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, I'm here reading on Wikipedia, um, my source for everything. <laughs> that uh, originally, when it was released in the United States, the film was rated X. Oh wow! Um, and so that that kind of brings me down the. Would that film still be rated X today? And it would get R. I, I, I yeah, I honestly yeah. don't think that. I think the X rating is almost defunct, except for you know, well, like nothing, erotica nothing gets, type stuff. Nothing gets X rated anymore. It's yeah. it's was named like NC seventeen, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but nothing nothing is X quote X rated anymore because yeah. the ratings have changed since the nineteen seventies. Yeah, um, <laughs> films that were rated R in the past would probably be rated PG-13 PG now because yeah. PG-13 didn't exist. You had yeah. G, PG, and R. Yeah. And nowadays, yeah, we, we tend to let uh, more stuff slide, yeah. <laughs> the higher ratings especially. So I just thought that was an interesting, you know, I mean, Greg, you talked about seeing it when you were 12. Yeah. <laughs> so. Who rented it, by the way? Was it was it a, an older friend of yours or no? It was a couple of friends about my age, same grade, and they were able to rent that. Yeah, well, I think their <laughs> parent might have gotten it yes. for them. But oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I don't know. It... Uh, you want to talk about bad parenthood? <laughs> well, I don't know. You know what? What do you, Greg? Do you think it was a was a beneficial experience to see that at that age, or do you think it's it's kind of uh, tainted your perceptions of certain things as a result? I don't think it's really tainted anything. I mean, I was at about the age when I started, you know, wondering about that kind of stuff, you know, around 13, puberty starts to kick in, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So, you know, it was kind of shocking at first, but uh, once I went back and just thought about, you know, what I had seen, kind of an interesting movie. It was something that I'll remember, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think back on... Uh films that really affected me as a kid and uh the only thing i can come up with is is star wars <laughs> like <laughs> i remember uh, i think at, at 10 or 12 something like that i we had this program that was like a it was one of the first like multimedia encyclopedias you know it had uh hmm. oh it was it was called cinemania but uh, the program the program was basically a a compilation of information about movies it was like imdb before there was imdb pretty much oh cool um and it was on a cd and it had uh you know it had biographical information it had you know cast and crew lists um you know production photos and it had clips from the movies so star wars was in there of course and Mm -hmm. i remember my first exposure to star wars was the clip when obi-wan dies (laughs) Hmm. so it was it started you know they're they're in the hangar bay and uh 
they you know they sneak they run, they run over to the Millennium Falcon and then uh, Luke sees uh, Vader and, and Ben fighting and so it had their little fight you know Ben said his thing and then you know if you strike me down I should become more powerful blah 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 uh, Vader strikes him down you know he falls this was of course before the the special editions so his lightsaber was still white mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know so he dies you know no Ben oh! You know, the stormtroopers come in and big laser fight, and then they get away to the Lamb Falcon. And I, it you know, made no sense to me seeing it for the first time, and it really freaking made me want to see Star Wars. So we, <laughs> we, we finally watched it, and um, it, I don't know, it blew my mind. It, it set my you know, imaginative precedent for years to come, and I still sort of have that soft spot in my heart for epic science fiction stories. And I think it was a good place to start. You know, Star Wars is a is a good film. Sure, it's just a, a darn good film. And uh, you know, I think Lucas never realized that that was enough. It was enough for him to make one really good film and then just leave it there and go on to other stuff. But no, he had to he had to milk it for all it was worth. <laughs> I I enjoyed five and six. I, six. six. Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, you know, it was, it was good. Whatever. But you could tell that he was. He was really struggling. He lost. To, the, I think he, he that as it. as the series went on, yeah, in chronologically, not in like number order, right? But uh, it he did lose passion for it, and it became almost a oh, I have to make another one. Yeah, let me throw something together. Uh, yeah. it, you know, I mean, it was interesting. There was excellent special effects, you know, but you could. You can tell when somebody's heart is in something and when it isn't. Yeah. And I, I think that as he went on, he lost a lot of that, you know, just drive and passion for I it. I have never seen uh, THX 1138. Have, have either of y'all? Um, no, I actually it's, haven't. It's apparently supposed to be pretty yeah. good. And, and it seems more like raw sci-fi-ish mm-hmm. than Lucas's other stuff. Uh, very, very um, you know, Logan's Run, very mm-hmm. uh, 2001 sort of centric stuff. Which, 2001, another Kubrick film, by the way. Also, I was also very underwhelmed by 2001. That's actually um, not a film that I've ever seen. Really? Really. Have, have you, Greg? Uh, or? Bits and pieces over television. Oh. I've never really seen the whole thing in one sitting. I have watched it all the way through twice. Um, probably two or three times, actually. Poss- possibly three. Um, and it's, it's tedious, it's, it requires a lot of patience, and thankfully I, I do have a lot of patience when it comes to movies. So, some people will, will start watching a film and then just abandon it halfway through, I and I can't do that. that I if I start a movie, I have to finish it. It's, it's your achiever. Yeah. <laughs> it's the achiever in me. But it's, it's one of those films that it is far more vague than Clockwork Orange. There's not a character that comes out and just tells you what the point of the film is, kind of right. like, like Clockwork. Um, yeah. There is only that that hinting towards something, and you're left to figure it out. Because, you know, you get to the end of the film, especially, when it really starts getting trippy, and then it ends, and you're like, what the F just happened? <laughs> it was um, do you th- very strange, very strange indeed. Do you think that's better, though? Is- I don't know. I am, I am still... I'm still torn uh, when it comes to movies. Um, I know Kevin would probably be like, you know, it's cheap for movies to come out and just, you know, tell you what the moral of the story is. But sometimes you can make it too obscure, I think. And there are certain films that just make their point 
far too obscure. One of the big criticisms of the film was that it portrayed violence in such a way that it was everyday. It just made it, you know, oh, yeah. that's it's okay, it's all right. And w- this is going back to Clockwork Orange, by the way. Clockwork, right? yeah, okay. not, not not 2001. Not 2001 <laughs> or Star Wars or yeah. <laughs> anything else we may have discussed. But, you know, it really did show rape, uh, you know, horrible acts of physical violence. It was all okay things for these youth to be doing. Or it could be argued that that was... That was how it was showing them. What do you all think about that? Do you think I, that was the point? I, I think it, it was to, to kind of show, yeah, that this in this in this dystopian future for these guys, these acts have become, you know, a night on the town. As as casually as we would go and play pool at a at a bar, you know, uh, maybe sip a few beers, these guys go and beat up a hobo, or go and, and rape a few people. Like that's that's their thing. That's just what they do, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, Greg, it was just kind of shocking, you know, to see all this. And it, it really, I, I think it is. It's supposed to, Kubrick is saying, you know, look at this possibility when, you know, doing these things just becomes another night on the town. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's part of the narrative. I think it, it really is, you know. The other sort of shocking part of the film, especially, is um, there's a scene that he is, that Alex is basically plays hooky from school. And yeah. um, just hangs out, uh, goes to a music shop, gets his Beethoven on, um, and he's listening to Beethoven. And, Ludwig Van, baby. Yeah, yeah he just <laughs> loves loves it. And I think I forget if it's the fifth or the ninth symphony. Ninth. Um, in the film, I yeah, think it's, it's the, the opposite in the novel for some reason. Um, huh. But they have him listening to this, and then just uh, almost some explicit sexual scenes going on. During the during that same time and just showing you know what he does when he's not at school or yeah. when he's, and it's was really sort of shocking because when you or at least when I think Beethoven I don't think you know sex? raunchy sex because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I really I think he had the threesome uh, yeah yeah so um, repeatedly yeah. yeah it's it's actually a, a wonderful scene it's 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 a fast motion sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I know, like and it's cinematography wonderful. I okay, mean, there I, I we don't, go. Don't Thank you for like, the clarification. Yeah, <laughs> cinematographically, because it, it's just like, well, I think Kubrick went. I want to show a sex scene, but if I do it too explicitly, they're not going to let me put it in theaters at all. So I'll make a fun little thing with it, and uh, it came off really well. And, and the music that he used for it was yeah. fantastic. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, Beethoven's Ninth for that. It was um, William Tell Overture, right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Okay. Yeah, um, which which is great. I mean, you have this fast motion stuff, you know, and you've got you know, <laughs> and that that song was always associated with cartoons for me. Yeah. Um, so to see it associated with that was just like, huh. Well, it really did play well into the uh, like fast forward yeah. nature of it because oh, it's like, yeah. okay, yep, yep. <laughs> Because it really builds to a climax, and you know, how many more puns can I make here? Um, I don't know. It it really was excellent, and I think that's yeah. an interesting. It was excellent. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Facepalm. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's one thing that Kubrick does really well. Yeah. Is he really brings classical pieces into uh, into his films? Yeah. Um, 
when, when you were talking about 2001 uh, yeah, earlier. Most famous of which, you know. Yeah, uh, um, the Zarathustra fanfare, mm-hmm. I believe, is the name of it. And that's, you know, it's always been interesting to me because you play that for most people and they'll be like, oh, that's the song when the. the With the space and, station yeah, and the, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it was, you know, originally written years before that. Oh, yeah. And All these pieces were. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just interesting how, how well he brings them into it and almost makes it. You know, more popular than the original. It's yeah. Um, I, Kubrick is brilliant. Yeah. Um, I I have still yet to see Blade Runner. Uh, do y'all remember any other Kubrick films off the top of your head? No. That's those would be the big three. I know that they have the uh, gigantic box DVD set of you know you can just watch everything <laughs> another, Kub- all Kubrick all the time type of thing. Another Kubrick in the wall. Yeah. Yeah. It w- was uh. Wow. <laughs> One flew oh, over the cuckoo's nest. I've got a million nest. of these. <laughs> One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Was that Kubrick? Is that Kubrick? Um, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Hey, you, you're the guy with the laptop. You pull uh, the it up. battery died. Oh, <laughs> what's that? A netbook's battery died? <laughs> hey, it, I've been using this for like three days straight without. I read all of someone comes to town, someone leaves town on this. Oh, that. Did you finish it? I did. Oh, see, I'm it's, still, uh, I'm still going through the audiobook. Um, well, the audio podcast. Uh, for those of y'all who don't know, uh, Cory Doctorow is, is currently podcasting, uh, reading his 2005 novel, uh, Someone Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town. It's a fantastic thing. He's gone about um, a third of the way through it by now, I think. Um, I'm about a quarter of the way through the book. Doctorow is, is not the best reader in the world, but you know he wrote the thing, so he knows what... He did at you on Twitter, sir. He did, he did. I, you know, Doctorow, if you listen to this podcast... You know, thumbs up for Slurpees, man. Uh, but that really made my night to to, uh, to come back and see that. But he, uh, I, you know, I've enjoyed it, and it's it's one of those things that you just have to let yourself get into, because the story is is very odd, and the characters are very odd, and the yeah. narrative is very odd, and it's well written. It's it's tech. It's fantasy. It's I don't even know how to describe it. Check it out, um, craphound.com. And it's subscribe free. to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, and it's like, free. honestly, you can do whatever you want with it. And that's one thing that I, I actually last night downloaded an app and start, for my iPhone and started reading uh, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, which mm. was his first novel. Uh, and Kevin had recommended it when we were at lunch last week and uh, really enjoying it. It's just, I think he does have a really interesting writing style because it he mixes in. Uh, sorts of i guess this is everyday life and then tech stuff and then something weird you know it's it's sci-fi and what gets me is he just he puts tech into literature yeah and and that's the best thing about it is is you know this relates to how we're we're living now um you know you read a lot of the um I think the lack of appeal that comes from for people reading classic literature is it's a completely different social paradigm. It's a completely different technological paradigm. You know, the people are talking about, you know, buggies and carriages or swords and, you know, it's just it's so distant for most folks. And and Corey's writing this stuff that's got Wi-Fi and laptops and mesh networking and databases and and you're just like, "Oh my god, this is this is my life. This is this is current contemporary culture." Maybe an alternative universe in that, but yeah. you know, that's still, it's relevant. It feels relevant. 
um, I don't know, Greg, did you, did you ever have that problem reading, like doing your reading list for school? You know, did you, did you pick up a book and be like, this is totally, I can't relate to this. <laughs> I found quite a few of the books on the reading list at school boring. <laughs> like, did, did you have to, have to do um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Good, good book, but still, I, I found it kind of hard I actually never approach. had to read that. No? Yeah. Um, Pride and Prejudice... Thankfully, no. No. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite bad book that I read was a separate piece. I don't know if you all ever read never that. heard of it. Basically, uh, two kids go to school. One of them's the more popular, and you know gets the girls, things like that. And the other one's his good friend and is the smarter of the two. And they kind of have a love hate relation type relationship type of thing going on. And at one point, the thing to do at this college is to go up in the on the river. There's they have a, like a river that runs through their campus, and uh, it there's a tree that hangs over it, and they jump off of it, and it's like the big manly thing to do. They <laughs> jump off into the river and swim, and it's a you know fun times are had by all. Um, and so what happens is he and his friend climb up into this tree, and I think he pushes his friend off and he like ends up breaking a leg on the way down and stuff. And then he ends up feeling bad about it the entire time. Um, and eventually I think his friend dies from it. Um, because like a fragment of bone enters his bloodstream or something. And it, it was a, it was a good novel, but it was just so difficult to read in school because you couldn't relate to it at all as a, I can't remember if it was, middle school or high school, but you just couldn't relate to it because it was college in the 70s. And I mean, you know, you don't think about that. You're just as a school kid in 97 or whenever I was reading this, you know, maybe not 97. That's a little early for that. I don't know. But um, you can't relate at all to it. And so it's weird. You know, why is this? I had that problem with a lot of stuff, and, and thankfully I placed out of freshman English here at Tech because apparently there's a lot more of that um, that these these incoming freshmen have to do. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm just watching what you're doing with your thumbs there. Are you scrolling through a very large document? Yes, I'm the Stanley Kubrick Wikipedia article, and the filmography is all the way at the bottom. But it, for you some didn't reason, use the, the link, link the... won't work. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Wikipedia fail. Or Wikipedia does make liberal use of, of uh, targets and web pages. I, I I remember targets being like a oh this is kind of neat, but never using them much. Yeah, <laughs> it's more of a text thing. Hmm. Interesting. What'd you find? Um, I found out that the Stanley Kubrick article makes Safari on iPhone three O beta two crash. <laughs> Okay. Fail. Um, <laughs> let's try. Fail like indeed. Um, anyway, but well, so uh, you know, I love enough uh, bad literature. Any other good points from the film that um, I mean, you've I'm, seen it I'm the most recently. I'm thinking back again. Um, I, I own it, but it's been ages. <sighs> See, it was it was just last Friday for me, so I'm I'm like trying to remember. Um, yeah, what did y'all? What did y'all think was the point of just the the overabundance of sexual imagery? Like, was that was that supposed to be like equally as impactful as the the violent scenes? It almost kind of makes it seem like he's doing to you what they did to the main character, kind of showing you a lot of those sex scenes 
and making you feel bad about it. Wow. Uh, Applause there, Yeah, golf clap. I think we just went meta. Wow. Good work. (laughs) No, that's an excellent point. Yes. it, because I, it, never, I did not think about it that way. It really yeah. does, and that's one of those. There are there are a few films that make me sick to watch, and that's one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one was uh, Unforgiven. Unforgiven. Yeah, where he cheats on his wife. I don't know. It's like a Richard Gere film, and oh. basically, um, the wife no, the wife cheats on him, and like just very explicit sex scenes, and it's like a chronology of poor life choices. And, you know, people end up killing each other over it. Um, and you're just like, you know, it's one of the, in a, in a typical horror movie, you know, you always think of you yelling at the main character, like, don't go up the stairs or don't oh, go yeah. in there. Don't open that door. And this is exactly yeah. like that, where you're like, like don't, don't, don't do that. Yeah. You know, don't, don't do that. And A Clockwork Orange was the same way for me, where uh. I was like, no, you're going to, you know, you can't do that. It it may not have caught up to you yet, but it certainly will, yeah. and, and it does in a big way. <laughs> so, it, wow, that's a that yeah. was a great point. Well done, sir. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think that's about as far as we can go on the film. <laughs> this is this has been a very uh, a very f b f. Yeah, I, I like it. It's it's a good change. Yeah, you brought up the morality thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm. Uh, I learned something. I think we all learned something today. <laughs> One uh, side note, actually, they did do a reference to this in the South Park movie. Really? Yeah, Cartman. They implant a chip in his head that whenever he cusses, it shocks him. <laughs> so it's kind of like the making him sick thing. And they actually take the scene where he's in the white, you know, clothes, oh. the white robe, and put him up on stage and have him demonstrate the results. <laughs> so they actually do the exact scene. <laughs> Huh. South Park is a very mature show. Like it, it has a lot of toilet humor, but it does a lot of social, political, sure. moral commentary that just it's just priceless. <laughs> All right, well that, that's a good note to end it on. I think, Greg, thank you very much for being on BF. Uh, we, we'd love to have you on again. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, Jed. Thank you for your electronic insights and uh, intellectual no insights as well. <laughs> no problem. I live to serve with my overabundance of uh, electronics sitting on my lap. Oh, here. You'll get to do uh, plenty of serving as our, our cameraman in the yeah, future. Yeah, so. I, I try. Yeah. <laughs> and we uh, thank you all for listening to Bad Philosophy. You can uh, follow the show at Bad Philosophy or twitter.com slash Bad Philosophy. You can follow Jed at, uh, at Linux, L-I-N-N-I-X. And you can follow Greg at, uh, how does it go again, Greg? Uh, Links Bob 20XC6 L-I-N-X-B-O-B-2-0-X-6. All right. And you can follow me at S Torrance. That's S-T-O-R-R-E-N-C-E. We'll see you next time on Bad Philosophy. Plus there was that final supper with the twelve apostles. But the word in Aramaic for apostles is a peeps. And that is how they got the name for those marshmallow treats. So every time you eat those little yellow chips and bunnies, you actually are swallowing apostles. So that's the Easter story, even though we didn't mention anything about the burning bush or chocolate-covered folks. Bad Philosophy is brought to you by Skype Out and by Apple. Check out their offers through the affiliate section of our website. But at least I'm pretty sure that's how it goes.
Badphilosophy.com. That was pretty violent there, man.